Morning, everyone. I know it's been about a month since we've had a Monday night talk, but welcome to Stewart Observatory Public Evening Series, our 89th year of bringing you free astronomy lectures. And we welcome those of you watching this podcast, either streaming at www.as.arizona.edu or watching the podcast on iTunes U at the University of Arizona site. Um, again, this is actually going to be our only Monday night talk in October. Normally, we would have a talk two weeks from tonight, but that week we have the Mark Aronson Memorial Lecture. So I'll remind you, if you didn't get one and you don't know the schedule, we have these nice little flyers up on that table that give you the rest of the schedule. And the Mark Aronson lecture will actually be on the Friday night of that week, which I believe is, thank you, October 23rd. So that week we'll have the lecture on Friday night instead of Monday night. The other thing that I want to make you aware of is we have another special event in October that I just arranged last week. So we couldn't get it. Those little uh, um, uh, flyers had already gone to the printer. But we're going to have a special event, the awarding of the astronaut scholarship, on Wednesday, October 28th. Ed Gibson, who is a former NASA astronaut, he's retired, he lives up in the Phoenix area. He's coming down on November 28th, October, excuse me. He's coming down on October 28th. And it will be in this room, but note, 7 o'clock. Normally, we convene at 7.30, but this event, it's being sponsored by the University of Arizona Foundation, the University of Arizona Honors College. There is a student in our College of Optical Sciences who is receiving the astronaut scholarship. And it's funded, I think, both by NASA and by the University of Arizona Foundation. And so Ed Gibson is actually going to award him, and then he's going to spend about half an hour uh, sharing his experiences as a NASA astronaut. And uh, that's open to the public, and we'll have telescope viewing afterwards. So if you'd like to come and meet a NASA astronaut, please uh, come on uh, Wednesday, October 28th. But that's the week after the Aronson Lecture. But remember, this is 7 o'clock. Okay, normally we do 7.30, but this one, because of other arrangements, we had to do it at 7. Also, if you are not on our mailing list, we do have a mailing list back there, and we'd be happy to keep you up to date with events at Stewart Observatory. If you're not on it, please, you're welcome to sign it. If you are a student, especially in Professor Maroney's class, I am the person who will stamp your assignments at the conclusion of the question and answer period. Finally, it's cloudy right now, but the telescope is open and our operators are up there looking for a break in the clouds. So at the moment, it doesn't look good, but I'll, I'll do a spot check about 20 minutes after 8, come back and let you know when the lecture's over if the clouds have cleared and if the telescope will be available for viewing. So I think. The fans of radio astronomy are here. Remember, we used to have the Jansky Lecture as part of our, our public talks as well, and it's a shame that we don't have that anymore. But I would like to introduce our very special guest tonight is Dr. Mark Gordon, who is Scientist Emeritus at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. Dr. Gordon is a native of Connecticut, 
so you can guess where he went to college. He received his bachelor's degree in physics from Yale University, following which he wintered at the Hallett Station in Antarctica as a member of the US Antarctic Research Project. He received his PhD at the University of Colorado in Boulder, associated with the High Altitude Observatory, which nowadays is called the National Center for Atmospheric Research. He also worked at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory from 1966 until 69, and then he joined the scientific staff of National Radio Astronomy Observatory. He was appointed the first assistant director for Tucson operations, which he held that post here in Tucson, 1973 to 1984, and then served as project manager of the 25-meter millimeter wave telescope. You know, there's a radio telescope on Kitt Peak. As you head up the mountain towards the summit, you pass it. And for many years, I mean, that was built and uh, operated by the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. Uh, the National Radio Astronomy Observatory has now left Tucson, but Dr. Gordon hasn't. <laughs> He's retired here. He hangs around our building, and he is going to give us a wonderful lecture on Millimeter Wave Radio Astronomy. Dr. Gordon. What I hope to do uh, tonight is to give you kind of a historical account of the beginnings of radio astronomy which will lead us to Tucson, Arizona, which uh, will in turn lead us to a new telescope that we finished in 2014 in the, above the Atacama Desert in Chile at 16,500 uh, feet, which we built at a cost of $1.6 billion of your money. Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to begin by pointing out something which most of you probably know, which is astronomers are kind of desperate people. First of all, except for the exploration of the planets, we're all observers and we're stuck on the Earth. Light takes eight minutes to get from the sun to Earth. It uh, can take 30,000 years to get from one side of the Milky Way to us. So this is not a laboratory science. It's, uh, it's a great science for um, people who don't like to travel except to the telescope. In the early 50s, uh, astronomers discovered all kinds of new observations they could make. One of, one, one of these was observations at radio waves, not just light waves, but radio waves. Radio waves and, uh, and light waves are exactly the same thing. They're part of the electromag uh, uh, electromagnetic spectrum, but they vary a lot in techniques. There was an awful lot of enthusiasm for getting something great in the United States with which we could do radio astronomy. This worried the National Science Foundation a lot because uh, 
some of the giant astronomers at that time who thought the United States should have a national observatory which people could go to thought, well, the first one we should build is one for radio astronomy. And the National Science Foundation said, amen, we are not going to build a radio telescope at all of the big universities because we can't afford it. At the same time, there were a lot of famous, well-established astronomers that said, anything national is awful. The great breakthroughs in every science come by creative people at universities that are working with their own students in their labs. And uh, one of these was Merle Tuve, who was a giant in his field, worked for the Carnegie Institute of, uh, of um, Magnetism in Washington, D.C. And he stood up at a meeting when the, the creation of the first National Observatory was being discussed and said, I hope you're not going to put dormitories there. And people said, why not? And he said, because we don't want anything permanent there except the telescopes themselves, I suggest you equip them all with tents and let them live on the grass. Well, fortunately, he was overruled. And in 1955, an agreement was signed between Associated Universities Incorporated, which was created to run um, the uh, National Research uh, Center on uh, Brookhaven on uh, Long Island. And they were made up of the Ivy League universities, um, plus MIT, and plus the University of Rochester, which is a geographical thing because it was easy to, you know, nobody from California ever wanted to go back to New England weather. So they started this, and um, uh, so uh, the place, the first topic came up was where to put the National Observatory. And um, let's hope this works. Why isn't this working, Tom? Ah, wrong way. All right, so here's a map of the United States. And on the um, right-hand side, you'll see an arrow saying NRAO Green Bank. One of the things you have to worry about in radio astronomy, which is the equivalent of light pollution in optical astronomy, are radio noise. And in those days, the cars all had spark plugs that put out all kinds of static. Um, and there were, of course, lots of ham radio operators around. There were, uh, it was pretty hard to get away from this. So we selected, I shouldn't, I wasn't there at the time, a remote valley in uh, just over the line from uh, Virginia. Um, you can see that, I think. Um, right over the line into West Virginia. And this, this particular location um, was in an agricultural area with lots of farmers, particularly sheep. The roads were terrible. The people st uh, spoke with the lilt of an ancient Scots-Irish dialect. Um, and uh, they, uh, some of them went to church and had annual rituals where they put snakes in their mouths, rattlesnakes, and hoped that they... This was a different world for the astronomers who got hired there at the time. The, uh, the next slide shows you a little more about it and that um, this is in the Allegheny Mountains, uh, just over the, the line. Here's the, the line between Virginia and West Virginia. 
And these very sharp mountain ranges were the reason that the people did speak with kind of a Scots-Irish lilt, because it was kind of hard to travel elsewhere. And why would you want to? This was, uh, this was uh, they called it the Switzerland of America. So we built our observatory there uh, with a grant of $140 million, which was quite a bit of money at that time. And we also managed to convince Congress to establish a radio quiet zone. And that's a large area in which any transmitter that's erected uh, has to be approved by the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. And I believe today, although I haven't lived there recently, that even cell phones cannot be used in this area. And they make because it worked at low frequencies. Anyway, so here the observatory was being uh, built. There are a lot of famous, well-established uh, now, but younger astronomers who instantly wanted to go to work for us. I don't know what their family thought about this, but they wanted to work there. One of them was Frank Drake, who later became famous because he started the uh, SETI Institute to look for extraterrestrial intelligence. And Frank has a very creative mind, and he said, look, what kind of a radio observatory are we going to have, a national radio observatory, if we can't also look at the full radio spectrum? And people said, what are we missing? He said, millimeter wave astronomy, very short wavelengths. We ought to have something that we could look at that. So uh, he got the blessings from Associated Universities Incorporated. And uh, the first thing he did was to, uh, he, he knew all kinds of tidbits. There was a guy by the name of uh, Frank Lowe, who used to be a professor here. Unfortunately, he's passed away. Frank Lowe had invented a germanium diode uh, when he was a graduate student and was quickly hired um, by Texas Instrument to see what they could do with it. Well, this germanium diode could also detect millimeter waves, and Frank Drake knew that. So Frank Drake got on an airplane, flew to Texas Instruments, and managed to persuade Frank and his family to take a 50% cut in pay and move to Greenbank, West Virginia. So Drake and Lowe thought, well, we've got to, we've got to build something. We've got to build a receiver, and we're going to need a, very, a small uh, radio telescope, a paraboloid. I think it was about five feet in diameter. So they acquired the small dish, and um, Frank Lowe built up a receiver that could detect uh, millimeter waves. And the first winter, uh, they, when everything was frozen out, there was no water vapor in the atmosphere to absorb these incoming waves. They didn't detect anything. So these people never give up, and they said, we're in the wrong place. First of all, we need a much, much larger telescope. And secondly, we need to go to a place where there's no water vapor, because atmospheric water vapor absorbs these radio waves. So uh, Frank Drake, uh, um, or uh, Frank Lowe, on a January, uh, when it was snowing, had heard that nuclear submarines, which were made around Norfolk, Virginia in those days, had a lathe 
that uh, could mill anything up to 36 feet in diameter. The reason it was 36 feet was because this was the size of the pressure hull in nuclear submarines. And uh, it had to be very, very precise because this was the system that prevented these nuclear submarines from crushing when they went down to great depths. So as all of us who'd worked with Frank know, he's incredibly, was an incredibly creative person. He drove down, inspected this stuff, and said, that's it, our new telescope's going to be 36 feet in diameter. So he came back and started figuring out ways. Now, he was a laboratory physicist, very creative people. Astronomers aren't so creative. The other people build their stuff. And uh, so uh, uh, Frank Drake said, well, you know, we have, uh, we have to have money for this. So he wrote a proposal for $1.5 million to the National Science Foundation for a millimeter wave telescope. Uh, and he calculated that by, he observed that the cost of a telescope was about the same price as hamburger per pound. So he said, well, how much is the thing going to weigh? What's hamburger selling for at this time? And he came up with a price of $1.5 million, including some stuff. So uh, it, the proposal was one and a half paragraphs, I was told. And Associated Universities Incorporated, very prestigious you know, people who always had coats and ties and vests and all of that kind of thing, and were uh, uh, looked at and said, well, it seems a little crazy to us, but we'll back this. And so it was submitted. And a month later, he got a check for $1.5 million. Doesn't happen like that today, I don't think. So at this point, Frank Lowe kind of lost control of this instrument. Uh, the first thing that uh, we got was one of our people were, was very good at managing projects. And he said, we are not going to have a submarine company build this dish. And we're going to go out to an aerospace company. He went out for um, bids. And the Rohr Corporation, uh, located in uh, Chula Vista, California, right outside of San Diego, uh, gave us the, um, the bid. And uh, things started. Um, also, uh, there was a great question of where we were going to build this thing. Well, we were the first of the national observatories, and Kitt Peak National Observatory was the second. And they came here for a different reason. They came here because they hated clouds, and uh, their people at Harvard and Princeton and wanted to have a place where they could go and make observations when it didn't rain. So they had established themselves here on Kitt Peak. We approached them and said, look, can we have a section of Kitt Peak to build this telescope? They said, sure. So uh, money was passed from the one hand of the National Science Foundation to the other hand of the National Science Foundation. And um, I've got to make sure I know where I'm going. And um, uh, I'd like to show you in uh, this project was started. So this talk really is about the evolution of millimeter wave astronomy at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. And what I want to talk about tonight, and I hope I don't take up too, too much time, is how we got to this. This is the telescope, the first one that was built on Kitt Peak. And this is uh, an artist's uh, description of what we built in Chile. 
Here is a picture of Frank Lowe, and he was a laboratory guy, so he didn't have a Chevrolet. He had to get something that was a little different, a four-wheel, and there's his two daughters uh, with him. And in the background, you can see the prefabricated houses because we had to have decent houses to attract some of the astronomers. No one wanted to live in a tent, and some of the older buildings there were a little, little rough. Um, and this, uh, I won't show very many of these, so you're safe, but um, this, this is a spectrum of the transmission of the Earth's atmosphere. And up in here is completely transmission, and this is completely opaque, and this runs from zero up to 600 gigahertz, very, very high frequencies. And uh, what we do in our television is all down in this area. And Frank's bolometer, he was only thinking of continuing, this is what it would detect. Above these notches are sections, of frequency sections through which millimeter wave uh, emission would not pass. And here's one associated with oxygen in the atmosphere, another one with oxygen, water vapor, this is why you had to get away from Green Bank. Uh, and this is why Tucson was good, because we're dry. And here's another one in here. So for this reason, Kitt Peak uh, was the place to go. So um, I think I may have uh, maybe got a little bit ahead of myself here. So anyway, um, here's Roar Corporation gets this telescope. They're going to machine this thing as one unit. That's the size of their mill in Chula Vista. And they decided to weld aluminum plates um, here to a steel backup structure. And this is the mill. Well, this turned out they have problems. The first thing that happened is that the milling device cut a hole through this. And so since these were welded on, uh, you just couldn't put another panel in. So it was patched. And the only patched material that would work um, would be hardened aluminum. So every time the, the bit came by that, broke bits. So it took a long time. The next thing that happened was that they would measure their progress from one day to another. And they noticed that even though they had been careful to set up the mill, the surface was not what they expected. Well, some detective work showed that the problem were the tides and that this company was located on the beach in Chula Vista, California. And as the tides came in, they swelled the sand. So the beach tilted a little bit. And this is a precise telescope they're trying to make. So that took them a while to figure that out. So they then had to synchronize their milling with the tides. So right from the beginning, it was an astronomical telescope. <laughs> So anyway, uh, they finally finished, and, uh, and then they drove it from Chula Vista, California to Kitt Peak, and this was the truck. This is uh, taken in February 1966, and it had a clever little device on the back so they could tilt this. So when they were on a wide road and no traffic was coming, they could make it flat, but then when they had to go through a cutout like this, uh, then they had to tilt it. So it was pretty clever. But they finished it before the, the Kitt Peak site was ready to receive it. So at Kitt Peak, we were building the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in those days never spent money on anything. We were famous for using tossed out 
prison furniture that didn't even meet the GSA standards. And GSA didn't want it, but we got it. So we had a reputation for doing that. So we didn't want to build a big, expensive steel dome or something like that. So here's the dome that we were on the shoulder of Kitt Peak that's still there today. And for scale, you can see an iron worker at the top. This is the yoke and alidade for this reflector. So anyway, work was continuing on this while the telescope itself was in a chain-linked fenced yard at the bottom of the road to Kitt Peak. And eventually, we finished it. And this is a fabric coating. No, you know, cheap. That's what we were after, cheap. And uh, here's the telescope uh, that was finally uh, put up. And you can see that this is where the, the receivers were. So the radiation would come down, hit the surface, go up to the receivers, and then we would detect it. And then by cables, it would go down inside. Uh, just, we didn't know how we were going to point this thing, so there's a built-in optical telescope there. And the door had to roll down because you can, if you think about it, this is a big sail if you get a windstorm. And uh, the, if you're familiar, those who are familiar with the glass telescopes, of optical telescopes, the focal ratio was 0.8. Unusual, very unusual. So anyway, there it was. And uh, we and oh, and this dome. There were in the base of the dome. There were four of these tires that would drive this thing around, and they were a switch off on. So you move the telescope to, and we started tracking. And then somebody had to sit there and throw these switches so the dome would move back and forth and all that kind of thing. So it was a crude thing. Well, the performance card when it was finished, it was awful. The <laughs> The goal, the goal, but we paid $1.6 million for this thing. That was a lot of money in those days. So the goal was to have a surface smoothness of 50 microns. The result was 140 plus or minus 10. In other words, it was much rougher. So it was a lousy mirror, even for millimeter waves. It was supposed to point to an accuracy of 10 arc seconds. Uh, <laughs> it, it did occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the surface stability was good when there was no sun on it, but when the sun hit it or the temperature went, the whole thing, because it was made of aluminum on top of iron support, would, it would kind of flex, so that wasn't very good. Um, they used a computer. This was new for radio astronomers. So we used a computer uh, to point it, and uh, the computer itself was so slow, it just couldn't process the equations. And uh, the servos, in other words, the connection between the commands to position the telescope and the reaction was awful. So you put in a command, and it would move, kind of, and it would overshoot and come back. And, uh, and then we had brakes on it. To save money, we went down to uh, one of these companies outside of Davis Monthan and uh, bought some disc brakes for large aircraft. And we used those to stop this thing if the wind blew. And of course, they leaked all the time. I mean, why else were they thrown away for the Air Force? <laughs> and we could never really align the slit in the dome with the telescope very well. So there was always some vignetting. And uh, the only thing that was good is the mount for the prime focus receiver and Frank Lowe's bolometer with his crystal. That was great. But everything else was awful. So uh, anyway, they, they tried to use it, I think, for a week. 
And uh, they managed to detect the planets, and that's it. You detect the planets, you detect the planets. So that was it, so it sat there. So anyway, we had uh, kind of a white elephant, actually kind of an aluminum elephant up there. There are other problems with this. Uh, I'm probably taking too much time, but I'll, I, there's not much science in this talk. I just want to show you how things work. Um, there was no dormitory up there for the astronomers to sleep. Uh, at the telescope, there was no laboratory. And fortunately, there were not many female uh, astronomers at that time. Uh, so uh, we asked it, we paid them to add two dormitory rooms. And um, uh, let's see, what did I have? Now, at the same time, while this thing which is sitting there, nobody using it. There were other things that were going on that were very important. In um, 1949, a brilliant Russian theorist by the name of uh, uh, Sklovsky um, decided that radio astronomers should be able to detect molecules from um, interstellar. And he had a whole list of these molecules he used to search for. Unknowing, Charlie Towns, who was at that time uh, provost of MIT, uh, in 1955, made his own list of molecules. And um, MIT actually detected the OH molecule, radio. Um, and then by 1969, there were four more. In 1970, carbon monoxide um, was detected. And I don't think I brought my little model, but it's a diatomic molecule with, uh, you know, in a big cloud of electrons. And it, its spin is quantized. So you can spin it, and it will go along at a, at a prefixed thing. And then it gets rid of this rotational energy to going to stop. And that line is in the millimeter wave. So um, we hadn't thought about that because the electronics had no spectroscopic stuff. So I'd like to give you a little bit more idea. I, I actually do know a little bit of science, although I'm forgetting quickly. I call it jet lag, actually. <laughs> uh, here is the Sombrero galaxy in Virgo. And it's a very good illustration for what spiral galaxies look when you see them edge on. And you'll see this dark band stuff. This is actually dust. These are clouds of very, very cold dust. Um, that are about 30 degrees Kelvin, and it's from that dust that stars form, and that you get some kind of a disturbance in there. There'll be little knots of that cold dust, and then gravitationally, sometimes they'll feel each other, and then they will, they will uh, crunch down into a much more dense body, and in time, there'll be a whole lot of stars that will form from that. So that's where we were going to look for the molecules, and... Uh, and here is our own galaxy, um, which um, this is a photograph because we're in the galaxy. I mean, this is a composite. We're in the galaxy, so you can't see it. But this is made by a bunch of uh, photographs that were put together in a drawing. This is the galactic center. This, we're seeing our Milky Way galaxy edge on. And this is the galactic center. And then you go all the way around. And this is opposite the galactic center. And this is the extent and latitude. Now, I want to draw your attention to all of this dark material in here. For years, people thought, oh, no stars there. Not true. That's dense, cold gas, 30 degrees above absolute zero, very dense. And that's the material from which stars form. And then when st stars die, 
the material that they make into various kinds of atoms returns to this. And so the process goes on and on. So this is why the molecules were, were uh, very exciting, because we thought uh, that by detecting them, we might be able to find the characteristics of how stars form. Optical astronomy at the time could only see them after they'd formed or when they died cataclysmically. So this was a whole new dimension to astronomy. So, um, um, so in order to do that, we retool. Oh, oh this is a, this is a list. This is a list uh, uh, made by Lucy Zuris, who's a professor here of where we are as of 2005. We've gone from just looking at carbon monoxide, OH, molecular hydrogen, which we've been able to see for a long time. These are two atom molecules. And you can see there's a lot of them in 2005. Three atom, four atom, five atom, six atom, all. All of these things are worth looking at for two reasons. First of all, there's no laboratory on the Earth that can be built to simulate the conditions under which these molecules form. They form in two ways. One of them is in gas phase chemistry, where just there's the gases around, they swirl around, and a hydrogen atom will make a bond with carbon and all of that kind of thing. And the other thing that's almost impossible to duplicate quantitatively is surface uh, uh, chemistry. There's a lot of grains, carbon grains, and various kinds of dust grains in these dark gases. And so on some of them, the atoms would land on two or three atoms and then they, on the surface, and they'd kind of feel each other, and there'd be kind of a catalytic help, and they would, these uh, molecules would form. So that was a kind of chemistry that exists in nature, obviously very important, which you couldn't create in a, in a laboratory. So that was kind of interesting. The other thing is that these uh, atoms have different isotopes. And so the isotope ratios are a result of the atomic or the nuclear processes that go in in stars that kind of burn up helium and hydrogen and inform different kind of isotopes of these atoms. Each one of these things would have its unique frequency. And if you, if you change those atoms, same atoms but a different weight, that frequency would be a little different. So by doing this, and with some clever work, you could kind of figure out the isotopic ratios of the elements at the star-forming area, not in the Earth. So that was kind of exciting if you're into that. I never was. <laughs> so we started fixing up this telescope. And the first thing we did is that we started putting more money into it. You know, it's ran counter to the way NRAO works. But we started building these receivers, uh, which they were so heavy they mounted here. So we had a mirror up here. And these receivers, uh, some of them would work at three or four degrees above absolute zero using helium refrigerators. And uh, so the sensitivity was fabulous. And uh, then we had to kind of fix up this little way of supporting things in there. So we can constantly pour money into this. But we made it look kind of amateurish because we had a reputation as an observatory not to look too flossy. Um, the, sur the flawed surface of this telescope was terrible. And we had a brilliant engineer that worked with us, first in his class at Texas A&M. And uh, he said, look, we'll measure the surface. And uh, 
which he did, and then he made a, a, a took a, a clear piece of plastic, drew this on, and then projected it onto the surface. So this is a night photo. So in this area would be, and there are numbers on here, this might be low compared to the average surface. Another one might be high and everything. So he then got sheets of adhesive-equipped aluminum foil, and he cut them all out. And at night, we would glue these things on just the right thicknesses, several thicknesses, to try to fix the surface. It's a great idea, we thought. <laughs> and cheap. <laughs> it turned out to be a disaster, it, because during the day, the temperature would change, and the whole figure of the telescope, the smoothness, would change. But it was a good, good try. The other thing is that we couldn't use this telescope in uh, daylight because the sun shine onto this aluminum surface welded to a steel backup structure um, would cause this whole thing to change shape. At this point, these astronomers that were coming to us, this was almost the only telescope in the world with which you could uh, do spectroscopy and try to detect these uh, uh, molecules. So, we had a backlog of one to two years worth of observing proposals where the typical time in the telescope would be two or three days. And the National Science Foundation told us at one time that this horrible old telescope was more in demand than any other optical telescope in the world, at least that they knew. So it was kind of embarrassing. So we thought, well, we'll make this teepee. This is a fabric teepee that you put on. So it's true that as the, light, as the radio waves came down through this, hit the surface, and then went back up to the, uh, this subreflector here and then down inside to the receiver, it passed through this twice. So you lost some signal. But at least you could use this thing in the daylight. Wind would come up and destroy this thing. So we kept about 20 of these things. They cost $3,000 a piece. And uh, they were sewn for, so we got very skilled in replacing them. Um, and the other thing that happens on Kitt Peak was, uh, this is a famous Gary Ladd photograph, is that <laughs> awful thunderstorms. And unlike, a lot, at that time, a lot of the optical telescope equipment, we were just nothing but sensitive, one-of-a-kind electronics. And I remember one of our engineers who works here uh, today, Bob Freund, uh, worked all night after a lightning strike and came back with a large uh, Dixie cup kind of thing, all filled with in, uh, um, uh, integrated circuits. The other thing about this that was expensive is that in radio astronomy, you, the way it works is there's a thing called a local oscillator. It's a frequency that you know and you put into a crystal and that mixes uh, with the incoming radiation, and you select which, uh, it's, it's a converter, which frequency coming in you're going to look at by changing the, uh, the frequency of this thing. They're called klystrons. They were $30,000 a piece, and uh, sometimes they'd last one day. Uh, sometimes they would last three days. Uh, I mean, it was really expensive, uh, and it was getting embarrassing because this was a lousy-looking telescope. Um, we finally got around that, uh, made them last a little bit longer by putting water jacket coolers around them, etc. But my point is, we were having problems. Not only was this telescope lousy, 
Bioelectronics was good, but um, uh, it could be better. And we were getting hammered by all the astronomers that were using us. So at the same time, in 1975, uh, we weren't a stupid organization. Uh, we didn't have a lot of people. But somebody said, let's build the biggest millimeter wave telescope that's ever been built. Well, I was the project manager of that. I, because, you know, if you're not technically inclined, they make you a manager. That's what I did. So, uh, but I had great people. So we designed this 25 meter diameter telescope um, that was very, very stable. And it was in a metal dome this time. This is it. And my job was to find out where we could put it in the southwest, because it had to be in a dry site, hopefully without lightning. And it had to be at site because our, our equipment broke down night and day, so our support crews would go up at 2 in the morning if necessary to fix these things. So uh, here I was. I was in my 30s, and uh, apparently I had been successful because my boss in Charlottesville, which the headquarters are, gave me a commitment authority to spend up to $25,000 in anything I wanted to without getting an approval. I had no experience in this. I could be in jail if I hadn't been lucky. But what we would do is that we would find a mountain that had a good road, like Mount, Mount Evans or Pikes Peak. And uh, two or three of us would go there, uh, fly there, and I usually charter a helicopter to get up there. So I spent a lot of time on the road. We could never find a place in the southwestern part of the United States that was, would meet all our criteria. With everybody, there was always something. It was either the weather, or the clouds, or access, or people didn't want us there. Mauna Kea was the place to go. So uh, it's close to the equator. It's at a dark site in that uh, in the evening the clouds form and they kind of stop any convection currents up. It had a road. It had power. It had all kinds of stuff. So, and I had to go there a lot. This was a lot of negotiation. Um, and so every other month I'd go there for a week and my neighbors just never realized how tough it was. And, but anyway, we got through this, and uh, we wrote the proposal for this thing, $35 million this time, and submitted it to the National Science Foundation. And uh, this was uh, Carter. When Carter was president, the economy was not good. Uh, everything cost a lot of money, outrageous um, uh, interest rates. So it sat and sat and sat within the National Science Foundation's queue for funding until what turned out to be Carter's last year. And Carter said, uh, this is a great project in the presidential budget. It's got to be funded. Had great reviews. He lost the election. Ronald Reagan was elected. And those of you who remember those days is that Reagan loved engineering, wanted to build factories and things like that, but just didn't appreciate basic science. So this, along with many other things, was taken out. We were dead, and this thing had now been around, this proposal, for eight or nine years. What to do? The um, millimeter wave astronomers, and by this time there were a lot of them, um, and they were a force, got together uh, in a New Jersey. I was not invited. They said they wanted to be able to talk freely about options. I've never gotten over that. And 
And, and uh, they had this meeting, and they said, we don't need a, any millimeter wave telescope that only has one element. So they said, what we need is an interferometer. And the interferometer uses lots of these things. You might think of it as a huge telescope that you could never build by itself, in which you build little sections of it, and that in individual little receivers, and, uh, or little telescopes and reflectors. And they said, that's what we want. Berkeley had one, and Caltech had one. And um, um, they said, we, we want something like that. And they called it the millimeter wave array. Now, I had gone through the throes of trying to get funds for this, and I had run into which everybody, all of you, would understand the situation, that the universities that had small millimeter wave facilities for observing uh, knew that if we built a giant array, that that would take away all the funding for them. The government would say, well, use this national observing. Just close down what you're doing. And uh, so I said, we can't build this thing in North America. I wrote a memorandum, and I said, got to build it in Chile. High altitude site, best site in the world that we can find. Spend a lot of money, make this thing enormous. And that way, it will augment the observations and the observatories that are going on in the North America. Well, that's what we did. And uh, meanwhile, because I thought oh, it's going to be another five, six, seven, eight years before we have a chance of funding it, we fixed up the, the, uh, the telescope on Kitt Peak. And um, I'm just going to pass through this. But anyway, we rebuilt it and made it into a good telescope. So where did we go with um, the uh, telescope? This is where we decided to put it. Um, this is Chile. This is Santiago. Up in here is the um, um, Atacama Desert. It's the second driest air-wise and precipitation-wise. It's the second driest region on the planet Earth. The driest is Antarctica, surprisingly enough, because you don't get precipitation. The wind blows and reshifts the snow around, but no pre precipitation. So anyway, we decided to go there. And um, uh, so I spent a lot of time there. My job was to find out how much it was going to cost, what the Chilean laws were, uh, even if we could do it. So here is a site, uh, a photograph, a composite uh, of the uh, picture of the site. Um, this is immediately east of uh, the ancient village of San Miguel de Atacama. And uh, which is up in this area, there's a road, there was a dirt road that went from Chile over the Andes into Argentina. Uh, but it was all dirt and it was awful. Uh, but still, there was a road. We didn't have to build that. This is uh, a geologic bench. I'm probably, am I using the right word? My wife's a geologist. I don't know what that means. Uh, this is a geologic bench. And so we thought, and this is at 16,500 feet. And we thought we were going to put this millimeter wave array, which we were thinking of 40 individual reflectors, that we'd be able to move apart and then close together and do all kinds of tricks with them. And, uh, and then, of course, the people at the National Science Foundation in Washington said, you, can you breathe at that altitude? <laughs> and I realized right away that we had to deal with this. So. Um, my wife accompanied me. I went, there's a lot of high altitude mines in Chile. 
uh, copper mines. And so we visited a number of these mines, and we found them, there are two categories, these mines. The traditional ones that said, well, if we hire a miner and he can't breathe, we fire him. <laughs> if he can't breathe, we keep him on. And then there were more modern companies that said, well, actually, we add oxygen into the cabs of our digging and devices and all that kind of stuff because we want to retain these people. So I said, I said we gotta, whatever we do up here, we've got to have oxygen available. And the other thing that we did, because the National Science Foundation isn't going to believe anybody that doesn't have MD degrees and all of that kind of thing, so there's a guy by the name of John West, an Australian who is at the, the medical school at the University of California, San Diego, who is a, a recognized expert, probably the expert on how humans can cope with high altitude. He spent every summer at base camp in, uh, in, uh, for Everest. And uh, so it's a great name to say we have this consultant. So we hired him. And he said, well, he said, most people can adapt just fine to this, but it takes a while to do it because you have to increase the number of red blood cells in your blood because they're the oxygen carriers. And it takes a week or so to do that. Well, that's not good when you come down as an astronomer to observe that kind of thing. But he said, there's a drug. And the, dr <laughs> the drug is called Diamox. It's cheap. It's a little white tablet. It looks like an aspirin. And it turns out that can accomplish, uh, that'll grow red blood cells in two, three days, or maybe one day, uh, which would take a week for your body to do it without that. So we used that and found that it worked very well. And, um, oh, I shouldn't. So um, anyway, my work um, there, I came up with a price, and I found out that uh, there were, the Chilean had laws that we could work with. I found the mines could give us an awful lot of, uh, they did, um, expertise. For example, how to, how to man, man uh, or employees that would work at this site. And they use a, what they call a, a turno system where the employees would come up, stay five, six, seven days, and then they'd go off for five or six, seven days, etc. So that helped with the acclimatization. So anyway, uh, we came up with, uh, I came up, with um, a price of $600 million to build this. And about uh, 40 to $50 million a year to operate it. Now we knew we were on the right track because not shown as another valley and the Europeans were thinking of the same thing. So they had something. So we thought, what are we gonna do? At a meeting in Charlottesville, uh, which is our headquarters, both represent both sides, and they said, let's join forces. So they did that, and we now came up with a huge array that we were to build. And um, this is what it looked like in November 2010, um, where these telescopes, the, I call them telescopes, they're actually individual elements, are really amazing pieces of engineering in that they're built totally of carbon fiber because at this high altitude site, um, during the day, there's no atmosphere to um, uh, ameliorate the sunlight that comes down, and they're clear skies. That's why we went there. 
So uh, the radiation would be coming down on the equivalent of 5,000 Kelvin radiation field. That's how you characterize solar radiation. And then at night, only starlight would come down, and that was 30 degrees above absolute zero. So we had to have uh, surfaces that just were independent of temperature. So these are all carbon fiber. They're very expensive. Uh, we wanted them, we decided with the Europeans we'd have a great competition. They could design their best telescope, we could design our best telescope, we'd take them to our site in uh, New Mexico, and we'd have a competition. Which one was better and more reliable? Well, you know how that goes. After all this is done, the scorcher in the Europeans said, well, we've got to build our telescopes because our member countries in the European Southern Observatory will be very upset if the Europeans are not, you know, getting some of their product. And of course, we were exactly the same way. We said, well, we got our Texas group and our telescope, so half of the telescopes are, <laughs> were built in Europe, and the other half of the telescopes were built in Texas. This is not good for maintaining a very complicated set of electronics at 16,500 feet, but that's the way it worked. So anyway, um, uh, and then we did some other things. All of these, uh, I think the next site, the next slide might show you here a little bit better. Um, this is um, more and, uh, of these things. And I want to draw your attention to these little concrete things. This is the way we worked it. You can pick up these antennas. They're 12 meters across, so they're pretty large. And uh, you can, we have a special device, a uh, truck, that will pick them up and bring them to, say, this site. And at this site would be all of the fiber optics connections, all the power connections, everything you need here. And we had these spread over 20 kilometers. Uh, so you could spread them all out, in which case you'd get extremely high resolution, or you could bring them all close in. And you wouldn't get the sensitivity um, uh, wouldn't be as good, but there are other reasons for doing this. And, uh, uh, and then in addition, the Japanese joined us and they said, well, we can contribute smaller telescopes. It was kind of like buying a Corolla after you had uh, a large Oldsmobile, you know, but Corollas were well built. So they contributed seven meter diameter telescopes. And they, the reason for that is in the center, they could all get very close and be uh, packed together. So anyway, here's, uh, this is almost finished. Uh, not all 66 reflectors are there. But wh when they were all spread out over 16 kilometers, I think, um, the sharpness, the resolution, that we could get with four uh, thousandths of an arc second. That's better than optical telescopes get. And, uh, and that's enough that you could, uh, the, that's what the width of, or angular width of a pickup truck would be on the moon as seen from the Earth. It's pretty good stuff. And, um, uh, they were, um, well, I want to point out one other thing. This has nothing to do with astronomy, and, and I'm watching my watch, so that I. Um, this flat is uh, a Volcan Chatnantor, very uh, volcano. And the reason it's, uh, it's flat is the Incas 
had an altar up there, and they used to take young children, bring them up there, and cut their throats. And uh, I told, I, I never talked to an Inca, but it apparently it was considered to be an honor to be selected. And the top, this is about 18,000 feet, 17 and a half. I've never been up there. But uh, so it's a place where, in this photograph, the ultra, ultra new in technology is juxtaposed against uh, the way people lived in, uh, when were the Incas here, 1350 through 1450, something like that. So anyway, this thing is actually working. And uh, another way we got around the high altitude, low oxygen problem was that astronomers never have to go here. Uh, there's a huge capacity fiber optics line that runs up the valley, and we connect into that. And so when you get your time to observe, wherever you are, uh, Sweden, France, uh, Tucson, Arizona, you can, you can manage everything um, from your uh, PC. The computers, we have huge computers up there, enormous computers. We had to build a special be uh, building for them where we actually increase the amount of oxygen in there so the cooling would be better. But anyway, this has been pretty successful. And um, I want to, I have a couple of, uh, I'm almost finished, a couple of things to show you um, uh, about this. This is an optical image of the red giant R. Sculptoris. And uh, I suspect you know more about astronomy than I do. I never had a course in astronomy, actually. Um, that this is the end result of a of a um, of a star that uh, it, when it would uh, run out of um, uh, core would run out of um, fuel, it would collapse in and then burst out again and throw off its atmosphere. This black circle is an artificial eclipse in this particular instrument. So the star, the red giant, is behind here. And it would be so bright uh, in, in optical uh, telescopes that you'd never be able to see this. So you had to block out the center. So that's a special thing. Anyway, you can see the gas out here, this outer shell. Um, this is 1,500 light years here, taking 1,500 years to get here. Now. Here's what it looks like with the ALMA telescope. Um, the color is totally fictitious. It's almost true with all radio stuff because, you know, obviously it doesn't have a color that we can see, so we color it. This is the same. Here's the shell on the outside, and in the center is the red giant. And you'll see this spiral structure, which you didn't see in the other picture. And the dynamics people who make models say that probably in here is a hidden star that's uh, dark and cold so we don't see it, that's going around here, and I don't know which direction it is, and that's taking and arranging the gas which was blown off of this red giant into uh, a spiral. So this is something that you, that Alma, that's the name of it. It's called the Atacama Large Millimeter Wave Array, or SPIRIT, right? That helps with the funding. And uh, anyway, so that's one thing. And here's something else. I won't talk about molecules because they're messy. 
So here is another, this is a comparison of a high-resolution optical image um, of a galaxy that's very close, it's, it's very close to having been formed. It's um, near the edge, or as far out, or actually as far early as we can see anything. This is uh, 800 million years from the beginning of the Big Bang. And we're here, we're 15 billion years. So it's very close. So anyway, this is this galaxy, which probably isn't even there uh, today if we could synchronize our clock. And Alma, this is also false cover, uh, color, uh, saw all of this gas, um, which is very near to this. And we think that there's something happening in this early galaxy where the ultraviolet is coming out and exciting this gas. They're very close to each other. So, here is an opportunity, it's, this is crude of course, but we're getting better with this, an opportunity where you can actually look at the details of things that formed really early from where we are. Absolutely impossible with other kinds of things. So, um, that's my last slide in my only astronomy that I'm going to include, and I have the wrong thing, but Anyway, what I, what I want to uh, wind up telling you is that astronomers are pretty desperate. Any way they can get money to do something better, they're going to push for it. Uh, secondly, they're pretty clever. You have to get clever when you can't travel to it. Uh, you have to observe. And we're never, never satisfied. By the time we get the equipment working well and the telescopes working well and everything like that, we want a new one, and uh, it's ongoing. But out of that technology comes some really amazing stuff um, because we have to do it. And so some of the things that we design um, find their way into other technologies. And that's the end. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. We have time for a few questions. Does anyone have a question for Dr. Gordon? I see over. family here. Not enough. But <laughs> so, so the instruments that you use for the detector, the germanium, all of that stuff, is, it, is all that cryogenically cooled? Uh, it, it wasn't originally, um, but back in the early days, there's a French astronomer by the name of Emile Blum. Uh, and uh, he visited us one day in one of those inspection committees that came and visited us to make sure we were doing things. And he said, why don't you just put that germanium crystal in liquid nitrogen? It'll work better. It did. So that started us so that almost all the stuff we make uh, we try to reduce the static that's generated by the apparatus within it. And the way we do that is that we cool it. And if you think to what we have to do um, to the ALMA telescope, where we have 60, 66 of these things with really, really sophisticated detectors that are running maybe 20 degrees, 30 degrees above absolute zero, uh, it's, I'm, I'm just amazed at this. So we've come a long way. Skipper took Bayon's refrigerator to generate the 30 Kelvin? 
Uh, yeah, they're, they're exactly, it's just like the, you know, your uh, uh, refrigerating your house, except it's not using Freon or equivalent, it's using, uh, yeah, helium in some cases, yeah. Any other questions? All right, it actually cleared up. So our telescope operators are up there. The telescope's open for your viewing, if you'd like to look through it, and they'll show you some things in the sky. Um, I'll hopefully, I will see some of you at the Mark Aronson lecture, which will be two weeks from Friday, the 23rd. That's our next public lecture. And uh, I will stamp student assignments down here. Let's thank Dr. Gordon one more time. <laughs>